Anyway, not much going on this week. It's kind of a slow week, things around the church. We do have some special things coming up on the 16th of January. Uh, Nathan Winters, our um, state director with the Wyoming Family Policy Alliance, will be with us that weekend. And also the national director of the Family Policy Alliance will be with us too that weekend. He's traveling around with Nathan, going to be in Jackson Hole, and then going to come and be with us on a Sunday. And um, so it'll be a good a good weekend to hear from him some of the things going on, not only around the country, but also in the state, um, especially as we look towards a new legislative session and uh, things that we can do to promote and stand up for life and uh, marriage and religious freedom. All those things are important to us. And so look forward to having Nathan with us on that weekend. And there'll be a couple of special things going along with that as well. So that's really about it. Let's do our catechism. I'm not using my computer today. It's too cold in here. It froze up on me. So let's do our catechism out of the bulletin. We're working through the uh, commandments. And uh, I, Amy and I talked about this catechism quite a bit this week. Uh, question 68. Let, let's do 67 first. Which is the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment is, thou shalt not kill. So, what are the implications? What is required in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. Think about the implications of that. Amy and I had a long discussion on that. The implications of that commandment are huge. If you really think about it, the way the, the, the fellows who put together the Westminster Catechism and the Westminster Confession of Faith turn this around and make it a positive requirement there. And, and then you think about the implications of that, that what you know, really is implicit in that commandment is that we are required to positively work for the preservation of life. And that, just a second, John, and that entails many things. And, you know, sometimes we, we only think about this commandment and we think about the implications, you know, that if you hate someone else, it's as though you murdered them and, and all that. But no, it's so much broader than that. Um, within this commandment is the implication that Christians should be working to preserve life through hospitals, through all kinds of ways that we work as Christians specifically um, and diligently to preserve not our own life, not only our own life, but also the life of others. John? Well, the implications of the Hebrew word. Yeah, there's a lot of difference. Yep. Yeah, so, so the word itself, to kill, is not just the word to kill something. It would be, you know, the, the implication of murder. Yes, thou shalt not murder. Um, so, anyway. Okay, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. And then we're going to have a special music with our offering today. And then we'll have scripture reading. We'll sing a couple songs and we'll study the word together for a few minutes today. And then we'll go back out into the warm weather. <laughs> Lord, even as we come together today and we think about what we just talked about with the catechism, 
the commandment. Lord, we'll see today in your word that you are the author of life. That, Lord Jesus, you are life and in you is life and you have come to give us life and to give us life more abundantly. It is the thief, Satan, who would steal, who would kill, who would destroy. Lord, I thank you for life eternal and what that means, that we know you, we have relationship with you, as you said, Lord Jesus, in John 17. I pray for the one that Rick mentioned today that's in rehab, Lord, in the darkness of, uh, of, of this moment in his life as he confronts some difficult things. Lord, I pray that you would minister to him and that your grace would be abundant and would draw him to yourself. Lord, for each of us, as we come into a new year, that, Lord, you would help us, that we would walk with you, we would please you. And, Father, we would do all that we can do uh, to honor and to grow your kingdom, that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, trusting that you will add everything we need uh, to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3. I hope you had a good time with your family, friends, those that you gathered with yesterday. Celebrate our Lord's birth. Special time to be together. And uh, I just want to take a few minutes in the Word today. won't be the longest sermon I've ever preached. I want us to look, though, in Acts chapter 3. You know, the other night, last Sunday, briefly, with the play and other things, uh, scripture readings that we've had, we spent a lot of time in the Gospel of Luke, some in the Gospel of Matthew, thinking about the birth narrative of Jesus. And what happened when Jesus was born, where he was born, why he was born. What I want to do today is pick up the story about 33 years later. A lot has happened. For most of his life, Jesus spent his life in a normal vocation. He was a carpenter. He is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. The Spirit descends like a dove. In all those events that surround that occasion with his baptism, the public ministry of Jesus is inaugurated. spends a lot of his short ministry. I mean, think about this. It's a short ministry. Three years. And a lot of that time, he spends in isolated Galilee. I mean, 
Israel is not the place you think of as the location to start a worldwide movement. But it wasn't God's plan. It's isolated, it's remote, it's obscure. He's in Galilee, travels to Jerusalem, various feasts, goes about doing good, healing, teaching. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The leaders of the nation are so stirred up by his ministry, they hate him, they conspire against him, and at Passover, he is slain. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's buried, not even in his own tomb. Three days later, he rises, he ascends. Pentecost. The apostles are trying to figure it all out. Who is he? What has he done? What does he expect from us? In Acts chapter 2, we have Peter's first public ministry in sermon recorded for us. It's in response to what is happening when the apostles are out in the streets speaking in languages they've never learned. The crowd is amazed and Peter preaches a sermon and he preaches to them Jesus and he says, repent. And then we have Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4 are one story. You have to read them together. It begins with Peter and John going to the temple at the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, the hour of prayer. And as they are going into the temple at the beautiful gate, there is a man who has been set there. This guy has been set there for years. And everybody's seen this guy. He's been lame since birth. And we find at the end of the narrative, at the end of chapter 4, that's about 40 years. He's been a beggar. As Peter and John are going into the temple, the guy is begging for money. Peter says to him, look at me. Look at me. The guy looks up, expecting to receive some money. Peter says, I don't have any money. Silver and gold, I have none. What I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, stand up and walk. Peter takes him by the hand. The guy stands up. He feels strength coming into his ankles. A man who has never walked is suddenly dancing for joy. And everybody has seen this guy for years. The crowd runs together, wondering at this. What has happened? And I want you to notice with me how Peter explains it. 
Notice with me in verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people who were in the temple were utterly astounded and they run together into the portico, this porch area that is called Solomon's porch. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Well, why do you wonder at it? It's not every day you see a guy who's been lame for 40 years all of a sudden walking. Why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? As though it was by our own power and piety that we made this guy walk. It was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. When Pilate had decided to release him, Pilate didn't want anything to do with this guy's blood. But you denied the holy and the righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. That is Barabbas. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. Therefore, repent. Turn back, so your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets long ago. Verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. Why did he send him to you? To bless you. By turning every one of you from your wickedness. Chapter 4, all the rulers of the nation gather. The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees come upon this. They see what's happening. They take Peter and John, and they put them under arrest, and they put them into custody. They hold them till the next day, and they convene the entire Sanhedrin. They say among themselves, they've done a notable miracle here. We can't just deny this, but we've got to deal with this. They come together on verse 5. The rulers of the nation, 
it tells us specifically who is there. These are the guys that have blood on their hands from denying and rejecting Jesus. Annas, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and all the high priestly family. They put Peter and John in their midst, and they asked them, by whose name did you do this? They say, Jesus's. It was Jesus who did this. You killed him, and Jesus did this. And they command them, this is their ruling, to never speak again in the name of Jesus and never act in his name. It's interesting. This is a sidelight, but it's interesting. People don't necessarily mind so much if you talk generically about God. But you start talking specifically about Jesus, the world don't like it. But Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among by, by which we must be saved. And Peter says to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. Formal persecution has not yet started. They just threaten them and turn them loose. They say, don't ever do this again. Don't ever speak in the name of Jesus again. Don't ever act in his name again. And Peter says, well, we'll see about that. What's the significance of this? Peter and John do many miracles. It tells us in the scripture that during this period of time, the apostles do many signs and wonders. This isn't the only one they do. Why this one? It's notable. It's a big deal. It's a big deal for this man, no doubt. He hasn't walked for 40 years. Now he's walking. But why is this in the Scripture? Why did the Holy Spirit see fit to have this recorded so we would read this guy's story? Here's why. This is very important in the flow of the story of redemption. The nation rejected Jesus. Jesus is killed as the prophets foretold. And Peter says you did it ignorantly. Jesus is glorified and the Holy Spirit has been sent. And God gives him another chance. He says you did what you did in ignorance. But now with the Holy Spirit here, it's a different ballgame. And God gives them another chance. And it's interesting when we study this, when you read this, Peter is in full expectation that if his people will receive Jesus, if they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him, 
that God will send Jesus then to restore all things. You'll notice that in the text in a minute. Peter is in full expectation that if his people, the nation, the leaders of the nation will say, we were wrong, Jesus is Lord, Jesus will come. That's Peter's expectation. That's why this is here. They acted in ignorance. The Holy Spirit has come under the full conviction and certainty of the power of the Holy Spirit. The nation now says no and rejects him again. That's the significance of this. There are many things in the sermon. I want to just notice a few things. Now, the first thing that I want to notice, and and what I want to do is tie this into our thinking this morning about who Jesus is. You know, my goal this morning is not just to fill your head with a bunch of knowledge and facts. It's to flood our hearts with worship for who Jesus is. And when you read this, when you read what Peter says about Jesus, it is stunning to me. Peter knew Jesus very intimately. I mean, he had hung around Jesus for three, three and a half years. Knew him inside and out better than any of us. And Peter tells us some things about who Jesus is in this sermon that are important for us to recognize and realize when we think about Jesus. In a nutshell, here's what it is. Peter tells us, Jesus is God's servant. He has been glorified, and he will restore all things. That's the message that Peter presents in a nutshell. Number one, Jesus is God's servant. Number two, Jesus has been glorified. Number three, Jesus will restore all things. Let's go through it real quick. Number one, Jesus is God's servant. Peter says that at the beginning of this sermon. He says, you know, guys, don't look at us like our own piety or power did any of this. No, it was God. And God, he says in verse 13, glorified his servant, his servant Jesus. He glorified his servant Jesus. Jesus always spoke of himself in terms of coming to serve. In Mark, Jesus said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, He came to serve and to give his life a ransom. Jesus came to serve men. He served men all the time. He washed the disciples' feet. He humbled himself and became a servant. But he didn't just come to serve us, although he did come to serve us. Ultimately, 
and fundamentally, most importantly, who was God or who was Jesus serving? God. He is God's servant. Jesus is God's servant. In many places in Scripture, we could go to demonstrate this. And I'm not going to go there this morning, but if you go to the book of Isaiah, and you start in chapter 40, and you go to the end of the book, you will see repeatedly that that section is a long prophecy about the servant of Jehovah. And all through that section, he uses that terminology to speak of the Messiah. He is God's servant. He is the servant. And it tells us that when the servant comes, his face will be marred. And they will pluck out his beard. And it tells us in Isaiah 53 about the servant. Who has believed what we have said? He has despised and rejected a man. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him, the servant, the iniquity of us all. It tells us of the servant. He will not lift his voice up in the street. It says, a bruised reed, the servant will not break. And a faintly burning wick, he won't put out. Gives us all these descriptions of what the servant will do. Jesus is God's servant. Now, it tells us at the end of this sermon, in verse 26, God raised up his servant. And then Peter is saying to these people, to these Jews who have rejected him, who saw to it that he was crucified, he says, God has sent to him, or sent him to you first. He's giving them a chance. I... God sent Jesus to you first now to give you this opportunity. And what does God want to do? As What is the servant Jesus wanting to do for these people who have rejected him, who have crucified him, who spit upon him? What does God's servant want to do for them? He wants to bless them. He wants to bless them. But that blessing is contingent, isn't it? It's contingent on them doing something. And that is what he says further up in the sermon when he says, repent. Repent and turn back. Acknowledge. He's saying, you need to acknowledge that this one that you crucified is God's servant. That this one whom you crucified, Jesus, is the one who came in fulfillment of all the prophecies. You need to acknowledge that. And now you need to turn to him. It's interesting. The Apostle Paul says of himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that he was a persecutor. He was an insolent man. He was a blasphemer. And Paul says, I received mercy because I did it ignorantly. In other words, 
And that doesn't mean he just didn't have facts. It meant that he had not been fully illuminated by the Holy Spirit as to who Jesus is. And so Paul says, I receive mercy. And Jesus is extending his mercy to this same set of people who had saw to it that he was crucified. And Jesus is saying, I want to bless you. I want to bless you. You got to turn back. He has been glorified. That's all through here. Dave read the scripture to us in Hebrews chapter 2, and we won't go there, but it talks about this very thing, that God made him, the Son of Man, a little lower than the angels for a time, for the suffering of death. And then it says in Hebrews 2, now he is crowned with glory and honor. It tells us the same thing in Philippians chapter 2, when it says, you know, let the mind of Christ be in you. Who being in the form of God did not think it something to be held on to, to be equal with God. But he made himself willingly lower than the angels. He, he, he suffered death. He became our servant. And then it says, wherefore God also has highly exalted him. Given him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Amen. Things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth. That's not future, that's now. Jesus has been glorified. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and he is reigning. And he said in Matthew 28 when he went back, all authority has been given to me. In heaven and on earth, go and make disciples. Peter is going in his name and under Christ's authority. He did this miracle at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It was Jesus who did it. The same Jesus who had walked in Galilee. But he did it through Peter and through John. He has been glorified. And then, he will restore all things. Now notice with me what Peter says. This is kind of the, the, the apex of the sermon. He says, God glorified his servant Jesus. He says in verse 14, you denied the Holy and the Righteous One. Not only did you deny Him, you asked for a murderer to be released in His place, and you killed the very author of life. And God raised Him from the dead. To this we are witnesses. We saw Him. We were in the upper room when He came through the door. We were there. We were on the beach in Galilee when he cooked us fish and he ate with us. We are witnesses to this fact. And he says in verse 16, his name and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong. And now, brothers, in verse 17, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, who within 24 hours he's going to be having an opportunity to talk to. But what God foretold by his mouth, by the mouth of all the prophets, notice that the unanimous witness of the prophets is what? Christ would suffer. That is the unanimous witness of the entire Old Testament. The Christ 
the servant will suffer. And he fulfilled this. 19. Therefore, repent. Change your mind that results in a change of actions. It's the best way to think of that word. It is a change of mind. And it results in a change of action. Peter says, turn. You've denied him, acknowledge him. Repent. Turn back. In order that your sin may be blotted out. May be forgiven. In the book of Colossians, it tells us that in his death, in his blood, he has blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us. He took it out of the way. He blots it out. He remembers it against us no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He says, repent, turn back, in order that your sin can be blotted out. Notice that our sin cannot be blotted out until what condition is met? A repentance and faith in Jesus. That is the condition. That is the condition of his blessing at the end of the sermon. When our sin is blotted out, what happens? In our soul... There are times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Remember how hot and dry it was this summer? That was bad, wasn't it? It was hot and dry. I remember towards the end of July, it had been hot. Everything was burning up. I was starting to get nervous. We'd get forest fires. Remember? I mean, it was bad. Smoke everywhere. And then all of a sudden, that one day, boy, it rolled in. And we got a gully wumper of a storm. And it just refreshed everything. Showers of blessing. Showers of blessing. That's what we need. Where do showers of blessings come from? When we get serious with God and we turn to Him in repentance and faith, He sends from His very presence times of refreshing in our soul. Have you ever experienced that? You know, as a Christian, that's not only when you get saved. Yeah, it happens when we're saved, when we come to faith and we are converted. But it happens all through life. I mean, if you're like me anyway, I don't always walk with God as close as I should. I don't know about you. And sometimes, you know, it's just like our soul gets stale and things are hot and dry and dusty. We're going through the motions. And something happens that stirs us up inside and draws attention to our sin and our, our neglect. And we have a sweet fellowship with the Lord where we come to Him and say, Lord, just wash me, blot out my sin. We worship Him in a new and a fresh way. And man, it's just like a shower on our soul, isn't it? A time of refreshing from His presence. And then He says this. Notice, this is interesting, and this is the last point. Jesus will restore all things. 
time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, Jesus. But notice verse 21. Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. We love Christmas. We love to celebrate the birth of the baby. We love the first advent. Man, the second advent is going to be cool. He is going to restore all things. He does it in just gifts of first fruits of mercy at times, just like this guy who he heals. And he says he is now enjoying perfect health in the presence of you all. <clears throat> when, he's restored, when, he, when he comes and all things are restored, it's not going to just be isolated cases of people who have received his blessing, it is going to be a blanket restoration. How cool is that going to be? Amy and I sat with Alan and Charlene Budge in their home uh, the other night. Spent some time visiting, and, and Charlene's struggling. She's got ALS just like Rita does. I mean, think about this. A little church like ours... Two people, the very same time, with ALS dying of Lou Gehrig's. And we were talking, and um, her body is just wearing away. She is a shadow, physically, of who she once was. But even though her, in, her outer man is... Being destroyed, the inward man is becoming stronger because, man, I'm talking with her, and, man, just, just flowing out of her the joy of the Lord and the grace of our God. But both Alan and Charlene, as we're sitting there talking, are like, man, I'm looking for the kingdom. I want him to come back. It'd be great if he came back now. The restoration. When he comes, though, you've got to be on the right side of the fence. He's going to restore all things, but it will also be the time when he comes as a judge. And so he says he's come first. While he's glorified, he has sent his son Jesus, the servant Jesus, in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit to bless us. But we have to turn to him. We have to repent, to turn back. We have to acknowledge who he is, that he is Lord. We have to call upon his name. And we have to walk in his power and in his presence. And so as we think about Christmas, Jesus came the first time in fulfillment of all the prophets. He lived, he died, and as all the prophets unanimously witnessed, he had to suffer. Now he is glorified. And someday, he will return. All the prophets say he will.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are glorified and that from your presence you dispense to us all authority to act in your name. Lord, we are aware that nothing happens by our own power and our own piety. It is only in reference to your name. Lord Jesus, we long for the day when you restore all things. What a day that will be. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song together? Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we worship and we praise. Uh, Lord, we reflect. And, Lord, we ask you to use our lives. Uh, Lord, that as you, uh, Jesus, worked to glorify your Father in heaven, may we do the same to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. Merry Christmas.